Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And it's great to be back here in studio at the ANU's Crawford School with my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. We have another fantastic guest here in studio today. And so, Alan, I'm handing things straight over to you. Uh, Thanks, Darren. Uh, We're really pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Richard Maud. Until recently, Richard was the Deputy Secretary in charge of what's now called the Indo-Pacific Group in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Before that, he headed the task force responsible for drafting the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper under Julie Bishop, and we'll come back to both those things in our discussion. Richard was my successor as Director General of ONA, the best job in the gift of the Australian Government, I think we'd both agree. And he was Prime Minister Gillard's Senior Foreign Policy and National Security Advisor. Before that, he served in Australian posts in Singapore, Kuala Lumpur and Washington. He's a graduate of the University of Adelaide and of the ANU. And I noted in your bio that you worked as a cadet journalist for the Adelaide Advertiser as well, for a while as well, uh, Richard. You've now taken on a new job as the inaugural Executive Director Policy and Senior Fellow, it's a long title, in the Asia Society Policy Institute, and we'll talk about that a bit later too. Now, I have very mixed feelings about having Richard on here. The part of me that thinks that the international challenges Australia faces have not been greater for 70 years and that we need the most able public servants we can get on the job is very conscious of the loss of his experience and insightful mind to the policy advising functions in government. And I know that that's um, a view shared in DFAT. On the other hand, as president of the AIIA, an organisation that wants Australians to know more, understand more and engage more with international affairs, I welcome the presence of such a thoughtful practitioner's voice in the national security debate. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. The first I think, long public interview you've done since you wandered into the wilds of the public domain. Good to have you here. Thanks very much, Alan and Darren. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as I began by noting, you were until recently in charge of the Indo-Pacific Group in DFAT, and that was part of a reorganisation of the department that followed on from the sort of structures you identified in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. The Indo-Pacific is a slightly slippery term. Sometimes it's simply a geographical description and sometimes, as in the uh, American embrace of a free and open Indo-Pacific, it takes on normative tones. So how how do you think about the Indo-Pacific and what is Australia's Indo-Pacific strategy? I think for me, the term Indo-Pacific is a way of thinking about the region. It's a mental map. Peter Varghese, also former head of ONA and Mm -hmm. secretary of the department and very distinguished former colleague, sometimes said that the use of the term Indo-Pacific was an, uh, an act of imagination as much as anything else. But I do think it's important for us to have adopted 
the use of the Indo-Pacific, and it does shape the way we look at the region and the way we think about the region, and it does have some influence, I think, on policy. It helps us think about Asia in particular in a horizontal way as much as a vertical way, so we're all very used to looking straight north to Asia, but these days we also have to look west to India. It's very important to bring India into the picture as a rising power of the region, and it's important to bring the Indian Ocean into the picture as much as it is these days to think about the Pacific Ocean. So for all those reasons, Indo-Pacific is for Australia a, a term that's here to stay. The Indo-Pacific strategy and the Indo-Pacific in general is, of course, a very strong and central part of the foreign policy white paper. There's a whole chapter devoted to the Indo-Pacific in the white paper, and that chapter is not a compendium of everything we're doing in the region, or nor does it attempt to look at all the issues that wash through the Indo-Pacific. It's really about one big idea or one big challenge and how should Australia respond and the big challenge is the change that we're seeing in the region, economic and strategic, which is driven, of course, by the rise of China. The white paper accepts that China's power and influence will continue to grow in our part of the world relative to everybody else, including the United States. And that's one of the biggest changes shaping Australian foreign policy for now and into the foreseeable future. The White Paper asks if we're entering a period now where America is no longer the dominant power in Asia, what kind of region will best serve our national interests? How should it work? How do we protect our security and our economic interests? And the White Paper says, well, we, we'd like a region in which we're free to pursue our interests, not constrained by the exercise of coercive power. We say that it would be good to have some rules of the road, even if imperfectly observed. We talk about the importance of international law, the importance of disputes being resolved peacefully without the threat or use of force. We talk about the importance of an economic structure that's open and inclusive. And then we try and work out, well, how do we get there? And the white paper has one answer to that question. It may not be the final answer, but... It has multiple components to it, keeping America engaged in the region as much as we can in economics and security terms, trying to find a modus vivendi for a relationship, a workable relationship with a changing China, a big focus on our key Asian partnerships with the big countries of the region, particularly India and Indonesia and Japan and Korea. The White Paper talks about the necessity of Australia being a leading partner for Southeast Asia and the role of ASEAN in the region. And it also has a section on how we can try and encourage this open, integrated regional economy that we talk about. So that is the heart of the approach to the Indo-Pacific. You could, in a shorthand way, say that what it tries to do is to encourage a region in which no one country absolutely dominates, but many countries have a role to play and a say in shaping the region. Yeah, it's four years now since you started drafting the foreign policy white paper, and I confess that I was um, publicly, I think, a sceptic at the time about the purpose. It had always seemed to me that 
foreign policy was too messy and variable a process to be pinned down in the way you can frame strategic policy in a defence white paper. But you and the others on the team convinced me otherwise. I thought it was a really fine and practical document. Not perfect, mind you. It wasn't your fault, but the failure of the government to allocate the resources necessary to address the unprecedented challenges which it described was a big disappointment to me. But the White Paper's analysis has certainly shaped Australia's foreign policy in beneficial ways. However, the fact remains that the world is messy and variable. And you began working on the document a long time ago. So how has the world changed since then in ways you didn't expect Look, I think um, just about white papers, of course, inevitably they do have some inherent limitations. They are easily overtakable by events. They're also overtakable by changes of government and ministers in the Australian system. So we approached this white paper with that perspective in mind. And I think by the standards of foreign policy white papers, and particularly given the times, it's lasted quite well and still remains in many ways a strong organising framework for a great deal of Australian diplomacy. But yes, you're absolutely right that the world is changing around it. I'm not an impartial observer. I think we picked the, the right trends, the right issues, the right forces that were going to shape the world. But I do think that many of the bigger ones have moved, progressed much more quickly than even we might have imagined a more unpredictable, unilateral and nationalist America, a more powerful China, increasingly confident about its place in the world and ability to shape it according to its interests, the the pushback against globalisation, the economic nationalism and protectionism we've seen, the pressures on the multilateral system, they're all there in the white paper, but the drivers that are pushing change in those very important areas of foreign policy for us have undeniably accelerated and the world does look even more challenging from an Australian national interest perspective. Richard, can I pick up on something you said there? And I want to frame this question as in a personal sense, like as a deeply personal perspective, because I was shocked by the events of 2016 in particular, the election of Donald Trump and the vote for Brexit. And I wasn't just shocked as a citizen. I was shocked as a social scientist, as a political scientist who likes to think that we have some grip on how politics works and can foresee some of these events coming. And so I spent a lot of time navel-gazing in the aftermath of of those two events to ask myself, how do I need to update my own model of the world? What was I missing? And how do I make that model uh, better? And I, I sort of landed on the idea that you know, the middle classes of the post-industrial world are playing a much more prominent role in foreign policy, and they're expressing that in hostility to the order. And you mentioned that in your answer. But I was wondering, in your own personal experience, whether if we go back before the white paper or around that time, whether you have ever been personally just surprised, taken by pure shock, where your model of the world just did not accord with what you were seeing and you were forced personally to update it. I think that's a really good question. And in our profession, we learn not to be surprised. Uh, In ONA, we used to joke that the only thing that we can be certain about in the future is the fact that things will happen that we didn't or couldn't predict. And so you grow used to the idea that change will happen around you. Mm. 
and to be open to the idea that we simply cannot predict how a complex world will evolve. I think your point about the middle classes is really important to grapple with because if we don't understand the forces that are driving that sense of discontent or vulnerability or cultural alienation, those forces that have helped propel Donald Trump to the presidency and partly lie behind Brexit, then we can't understand the modern world and we can't shape policies to adjust to it. And those forces are still very powerful. In Australia, we see them, but we're partly insulated, I think, because of the structure of our economy has sheltered, in some ways, Australia from Mm. the most significant impacts of globalisation. But in America, there's no doubt that trade competition, technological change has meant many jobs and many industries have been lost. There's no doubt that sections of the American community feel uneasy and a sense of cultural alienation about globalisation and modernisation. If you have a look at what's going on in the American election campaign, if you read through what the Democratic candidates are all saying about foreign policy, it's striking how often you hear those two words, the middle class, a foreign policy for the middle class, a trade policy for the middle class. So we have to engage with them. I haven't really answered your question about whether things have happened that have really surprised me. I suppose there are a couple. I thought that even uh, amidst a Trump presidency that the obvious benefit to America of its alliances and partnerships around the world, even more so at this moment of global change and grappling with uh, a peer competitor of the type that America has never had in the form of China, that it would be self-evident that it would be good policy and in America's national interest to protect and support allies and partnerships. But that's simply not so under the Trump administration. There are many in the administration who do see the value of partners' alliances, but the president himself seems to see many of them as a burden and an encumbrance And the strains that are on NATO, the strains that are on the alliance with South Korea, for example, are deeply worrying and I think have gone farther than I might have imagined. Great. Well, if I can pick up on your acknowledgement of the relevance of of the middle class and bring this back to Australia, because certainly my interpretation or reading of Prime Minister Morrison's repeated rhetorical emphasis on the concept of sovereignty in his foreign policy worldview as speaking directly to those kinds of concerns. This is the way he is is seeking to position the government in response to those kinds of pressures, positive globalism, you might call it. How do you see an emphasis or re-emphasis on sovereignty as affecting Australian foreign policy and perhaps affecting international cooperation more broadly? Is it an emphasis? Is it a recognition? Or does it actually change what we do? I think in an Australian context, it's not unusual to see an emphasis on sovereignty, particularly from coalition governments. If you go back, you will see that underlying concept in a lot of coalition foreign policy. In the national interest was the title of the first foreign policy white paper that the mm. government did. Precisely. And if you look at, say, Europe, the idea that Australia would ever enter into an arrangement where we cede some of our sovereignty to a supranational organisation. And I mean, it's, it's quite inconceivable. As someone else once wrote, Australia is very much 
in the modern world and not in the European-style glamorous postmodernism. <laughs> so I don't think it's entirely unusual for a coalition prime minister to emphasise sovereignty. I do think there is something in that speech and in the use of that term that does respond to a feeling that globalisation, if you like, has overreached and there needs to be some correction to it. I think reading the PM's speech is really important, though, because if you do read it carefully, he's not for a moment suggesting that Australia could or should walk away from the multilateral system. He is interested in uh, how to make it work better, including for Australia's national interests, and which bits of it, because it's very big, are most important to Australia. There are a couple of risks in it. And for me, the main one is that if you look at all of the big global challenges that we face, and climate change is perhaps the perfect example, mm. to get to a collective good, every country is going to have to give something up, is going to have to pay some price or take some risk to make a compromise. That's the only way to get a truly global outcome on climate change. And if everyone is privileging sovereignty first and foremost and not prepared to make those sorts of national concessions mm. voluntary, then it becomes harder to get everyone to do it, to get that collective outcome, which is what multilateralism is meant to achieve. You mentioned before the interests that Australia has in a rules-based international order, and that whole concept was uh, central to the white paper. But when you wrote it in 2017, the focus was on China's refusal to abide by the UN Law of the Sea Convention in the South China Sea. So rules-based order was actually code word for uh, UNCLOS in the South China Sea. But since then, other dimensions of the order have come crumbling around us, some of them, as you noted, because of the actions of our allies. So from your perspective, is there still an order to defend? And if there is, how does a country like Australia do it? I think there is still an order to defend. Order is probably not the best word to use. We actually tried not to use rules-based order very often in the paper. Personally, I don't like it very much because it takes power out of the equation of global order and power remains the, the primary organising principle of global order. But it's also undeniably true that built on top of that foundation layer of power, if you like, is a rules-based component where countries come together to try and build an international system that facilitates cooperation and finds answers to some of our biggest challenges. Clearly, that system now is under immense pressure from multiple directions. China's challenge is one of them. The narrow nationalism of America first is another challenge. The sheer complexity of many global challenges, the, the difficulty of finding solutions, the willingness of countries to pay the price to find solutions to them is another challenge. So all those pressures are piling on top of the multilateral system. We see it, as you implied, very strongly in the World Trade Organization. We see it in the human rights world. We see it in climate change. So what's left to do? Have we reached the high water mark? I suspect 
for the time being we have, but there are many reasons to keep persevering. First of all, there will always be some kind of rules-based system. It is vast. Bits of it work perfectly well, often out of the sight of ordinary people. The rules that keep uh, the postal service going, the rules that keep aeroplanes in the skies and help manage shipping traffic, for example. So there will always be some component of it. That's one reason to persevere. A second reason to persevere is that as a middle power, even one that tries to be active and ambitious in in its foreign policy, it will always be in Australia's interest, as the White Paper says, to do what we can to help create a global system in which outcomes are not determined only by power, by how big and ugly you are, if you like. A third reason to persevere is that these big challenges aren't going to go away and the solutions to them are only going to come from multilateral cooperation. Now, that cooperation might not look like the sorts of multilateralism that we've seen in the past, everyone in based on a deal where nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And you're already seeing that, for example, in the World Trade Organization with plurilateral rather Mm, than worldwide organizations. You're seeing it in a way in the climate change, which is just picked up and the Paris Agreement is sort of picked up with where America left off and is still going on. Climate change is another good example because business and state governments are also forging ahead on climate change. So all of this cooperation will keep going whether or not the system looks as global as it once might have looked. I'm struck or I wonder about the parallels between what we're talking about with sovereignty and what the Chinese would call non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. And putting to one side whether China actually adheres to this principle, does a stronger emphasis on sovereignty or perhaps the overreach of of globalisation or perhaps shifting balance of power in the world require a liberal democratic nation like Australia to pick and choose what issues it wants to prosecute? Does it require us to place less emphasis on liberalism and on democracy in the interests of getting cooperation on truly global issues like climate change or war or trade? I think that's a great question and you'd probably get a different answer, 10 different answers if you ask 10 different people. My answer to that is no, we shouldn't and don't need to go down that route of trading off, if you like, the things we believe in for multilateral outcomes for a couple of reasons. One is, again, if I go back to climate change, which apologies for using it as an example, it's actually very much in China's own interests to contribute to a global solution to climate change. So in that sense, I don't think we need to make the kind of trade-off that you're talking about to get to an outcome. And I think that applies in many other parts of the multilateral system where it will actually be in China's interest or even in America's interest to come to the table and reach an agreement. The second reason is I happen to think, and it's a deeply personal view, and we could do a whole separate conversation on this, that to the extent that we can manage it in this very different era, encouraging and supporting what you might call the liberal dimensions of the global order are actually important to Australia because they go to the sort of country we are. So we shouldn't 
give up on trying to prop up, support and defend universal human rights. We do need to think about how we can help those individuals and communities that have not benefited from globalisation, but we it's not in Australia's interest for the world to close down. Mm. Now, the idea of openness, which is very much a liberal concept, still works, I think, pretty largely for Australia, whether you're talking about trade or investment or skilled migration. So those kinds of concepts are liberal in nature, including things that go to the heart about how countries are governed, countries that have systems of government that are accountable to their people, that are fair and just and transparent and operate under the rule of law. Those are things that are important to us and we shouldn't give up on them. No, no, perhaps we shouldn't give up on them, but how do we operationalise them? We've talked on the podcast before, for example, about the relationship with uh, Vietnam, that Australia has an important relationship, which I think we uh, ought to be working hard on, but how do we differentiate between the way we deal with Vietnam in a power capacity and the views that we have on its uh, internal system? I think it's possible to do. We're used to having to manage this, particularly in Asia. I have said and written elsewhere recently that in this era, Australia can't afford to make values the primary driver of our engagement in the region. If we do that, we will close down the window of opportunity we have now with with countries like Vietnam. But I do think we have more capacity uh, to be clear about the things we believe in and to stand up for them without damaging those relationships. There's a natural tendency, including in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, to worry about damage to bilateral relations if we stand up for these kinds of principles. But when we actually do it, we do find that we can manage relationships and keep them going. Now, we can't change a Vietnam system of government, but we can be clear about the aspects of that system of government that we think are not fair, not just, not transparent. And that's the way we should approach it. A couple of months ago, Alan and I ended up doing two episodes focused on China, one arising out of his piece in Australian Foreign Affairs and one following all the breathless headlines on foreign interference back in November, December. And for me, the most interesting thing that came out of those conversations, and Alan, correct me if my memory is wrong, was Alan saying that he was sort of reassured by the fact that he saw China as more or less a normal rising power. Now, I'm not settled in my own views on this, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about how China conducts itself on the world stage and whether that might be affected by what's happening inside China, by China's own system of government and the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party needs to find legitimacy in order to maintain its governing control. From the point of view of of Australian foreign policy and indeed long-term thinking, how prominently do China's domestic arrangements figure in your model of global and regional world politics? Well, personally, I think they're very prominent. I do think if this was the point that Alan was wanting to make, China is by no means the first and won't be the last large country to discover that it's immensely powerful and that it can use that power to advance its national interests, often in a very tough-minded way. And we shouldn't at all be surprised by that. I do also think that even if China was a democracy, it could very well still be a handful for a country like Australia. 
after all, America is a bit of a handful for us these days. Indeed. But having made those two points, I do think that China's domestic political arrangements are a significant factor in the way that we have to shape our foreign policy at the moment. China has become much more authoritarian. We've seen ideology come to the fore and a significant investment in the idea that the party must remain at the centre of everything. And at the heart of the Communist Party is an ideology that is hostile to the West and to the things that we stand for. Now, you have to do some reading to discover that, but it's not hard to discover it. It is there. It is real. I think many Australians are still grappling with that concept and trying to adjust their own mental maps to that idea. But what it does mean is two things. One is that the the space for cooperation on issues that are of importance and interest to both countries is narrowing. That's the first point. And the second point is inevitably that has put and will put a lot more friction into our bilateral relationship, just as it is doing in the bilateral relationships with many other countries around the world like Australia. And if you stand back and think about, well, how is that manifesting itself in the real world? It does so in multiple ways. One example is that uh, the Communist Party spends quite a lot of time in the international system trying to reshape it to legitimise its form of government. We see that very strongly in the human rights system where ideas that we thought once might have been settled are now being deeply challenged. We see it in the unique ways in which the Chinese system, which has the the institutions and the ideology to drive it, seeks to influence and interfere in many countries around the world, including in Australia. I don't think personally, for third example, that we would have the significant problems we have with China in relation to, say, IP theft or cyber attacks were we dealing with a different kind hmm. of political system. So it does matter quite a lot. And for the foreseeable future, I think this is the China we have. And we're going to have to find out a way to manage the relationship, which is incredibly important to us, of course, uh, to find a relationship that's workable, to try and find that space where we can do things together that meet our mutual interests, but also for Australia to protect ourselves from some of those risks that are inherent currently in the Chinese system. Richard, as of today, late February 2020, what do you wish you understood about China itself or about its role in the world that you feel you maybe don't quite understand well yet? What's the biggest question mark for you? Well, I suspect there are very many things that I don't understand as well as I should about China. It's a big, complex country and I don't speak Chinese. I think there are probably a couple of things that I'd pick out. One is the future direction of the economy. I think this is a really central issue, of course, when one thinks about the future of China. The Chinese government is trying to pull off what really would be a transition in their economic model on a scale that the world has never seen before, to shift from an investment-led model of economic growth to a consumption-led one. And there's an inherent tension 
between that objective and the party's very strong uh, impulse for control and stability and order. So the, the economic reform story is patchy. It's kind of a couple of steps forward and then one or two back. And it's hard sometimes to work out what is the net balance. You know, are they going to be able to do enough to make this change, to sustain economic growth into the future? Or will they not do enough and fail, uh, not to have the Chinese economy collapse in, into the rubble? That's not going to happen, but perhaps into a period of growth that is underperforming, a bit in the way we saw this long period of Japanese growth, which has been very low, crushed under a, a mountain of debt and a set of policies that haven't quite transformed the economy in the way they know they really need to. I think all of that is important uh, for China domestically, but it's also important for the world because China is such an engine of global growth and also because the more China does over time liberalise its own economy and open up its own economy, then that removes some of the stresses and strains that are in the international system and in particular in its relationship with America. If we bring the China issue back home, an article in the Fin Review from December of last year, which was titled Canberra Divided on How to Handle China, describes tensions rising between two tribes, hawks from the national security establishment and more moderate voices from the economic departments and some would say from inside of DFAT. Do you accept the premise that there are two tribes operating? And and if so, is there a problem here? No, I don't really accept that premise and I don't like the analogy. It's an easy one to make and it's a good headline for a newspaper. We are grappling with, as Alan said, perhaps our most difficult external environment since the end of the Second World War. The China challenge is immensely complex and hard for us to get right. And it wouldn't be at all surprising that there would be a diversity of views within the Australian system about how to manage those challenges. Indeed, it would be unhealthy if there was only one view. I think there's a couple of things to remember here. One is that the public service's job is to give advice and it's actually governments that make a decision. It is not the job of AGO or the Australian uh, Signals Directorate to talk to government about the economic or other costs of a particular recommendation they might be making uh, on a security issue. Their job is to identify risk and to ask and answer the question about whether they think they can mitigate that risk sufficiently. It's the job of others in the system, including DFAT, but also the Treasury and other agencies to layer on top of that further advice. What are the possible consequences or trade-offs or costs of taking that step, whether they be in competitiveness or consumer cost or a cost to a risk to the bilateral relationship. So the real issue here, I think, is to give government advice that is fully integrated, that has the security dimension, but also advice from across the public service about implications of any particular decision, and then governments can make the decision. And we are in an environment where we are always going to be trading off interests in the way we make these decisions. 
And quite often governments, particularly in the recent past, are prepared to pay or risk a short-term cost for what they see as a long-term benefit Mm -hmm. to manage a potential risk or to reinforce Australia's sovereignty. I think it's not to say that the system's perfect or that we can't find ways to bring this advice to the government more effectively. A couple of things from my own observations. Sometimes the integration of that advice that I talked about happens quite late in the piece, mm-hmm. so that a lot of work is being done on the security dimensions of an issue, and then a bit late in the piece, the risk gets bolted on. And then a, a second thing that strikes me is not all of them, but many of these issues are very technical because often they go to our telecommunications networks or our critical infrastructure. It's quite hard for people who say don't design telecommunications networks for a living (laughs) to look at a piece of security advice and know whether, Mm. okay, that's convincing or no, I have actually no idea whether this is strong and sound advice or not. And on a few occasions, I've wondered whether in our own system we need something like a chief technology officer or some other part of government that has this expertise if you like, a second opinion on the risks of these very technical issues and how they can be best mitigated, if at all. Richard, why have Australian diplomats and those of us who believe that foreign policy is a critical element of Australian statecraft failed so comprehensively to convince Australian governments and the Australian public to invest in it? Is is it the issue itself or the way we go about it? It could be a bit of both. I can think of a number of reasons why this might be so, although they may not totally explain the problem. One possibility is that there isn't a burning platform in the sense that Australian diplomacy is undeniably very strained and stretched at the moment and the department's budget is under immense pressure, but it's not yet broken. And it's interesting to compare this to the, uh, going back to the American election campaign, well, again, if you go through what the Democratic candidates are saying, they don't say much about foreign policy, actually, which I suppose shouldn't surprise us, but one common theme is the need to reinvigorate American diplomacy because they argue that it's become degraded under the Trump administration and that it does need fixing. Mm -hmm. And although it's under strain, Australian diplomacy still has a pretty good track record. So I think governments look at it and say, well, well, maybe they look at it and say it's not broken, so we can keep pushing it. Another is the general budgetary environment. So governments have been focused on bringing the budget back to balance. Money is very tight. Uh, That doesn't help. A third issue, I think, is the politics of giving money to diplomats, say, over security agencies works less well, particularly for coalition governments. Another possibility is that governments sometimes, I think, struggle to see diplomacy in the whole. So they can go on an overseas trip uh, and have a fantastic program and be very generous in their praise for the embassy or the high commission that's pulled that off. They can be very generous in their praise for a successful trade negotiation or uh, the outstanding job that our consular corps does. But I sometimes wonder if they're less able to see and to value the long-term, steady, patient diplomacy that achieves results only slowly, but is so essential to what we are. And maybe again, 
there's something in our national culture there because Americans see themselves, of course, as a superpower with a great deal of agency and one way to exercise agency is through diplomacy. And maybe if we saw ourselves as having more agency, we would then see that diplomacy should be in the lead. And then perhaps lastly, we should just take responsibility as people in the trade for just not being good enough at actually making the case, not finding the arguments that resonate, not getting the evidence together that shows it makes the case for why this is important. Yeah, there's no diplomacy industrial complex uh, either <laughs> in, no. in our business. Richard, to pick up on your point about the long-term stability that de- effective diplomacy can help create, you do have a measurement problem, it strikes me, that it's hard to pin down with precision these types of successes, especially when so many of them are just the prevention of bad things from happening. How is DFAT doing in developing ways of measuring its output? Can it? Yes, it can, but it's hard and it's imperfect. And this is not a new challenge. Any department whose primary purpose is policy has always struggled with measurement. Too often we fall back on activities and don't spend enough time thinking about outcomes. I think a couple of things can help. One is to have a clear plan. And I think... um, the foreign policy white paper did actually give uh, the government and the department a clear plan at a time of rapid change. And so that gives you a framework against to report and a set of objectives against which you want to measure your own performance. I think even where you struggle to come up with indicators of a qualitative or quantitative kind, it helps to have a story, a narrative about where you think the progress is. So if our goal is to, quote from the white paper, to achieve a balance in the region favourable to our interests, it's a very long-term goal. It's hard to develop a set of quantitative indicators, but you can develop a narrative that gives people a qualitative sense about how we're going. Some things are measurable, and we're, I think, doing a better job of finding the ones that are. I think my final point is that At some point, uh, we all have to accept, department and government, that the premise of your question is true. That is, inherently, we're in a game where uh, change is measured in the long term. We don't know if the plan set out in the foreign policy white paper will work. We won't know for for quite some time. But as uh, Kissinger once said, that he said something like, the art of creative diplomacy is to act on assessments that you cannot prove at the time you make them. In other words, you craft your policy around a set of assumptions, you test it as rigorously as you can, you have a crack, you review it, and if it's not working, you change. And that really is, I think, the art of good foreign policy making. Let's turn to your new job, or at least one of your new jobs with the uh, Asia Society. In this capacity, you've already written a great essay called Charting a Course for Australia in a Changing Asia, which we'll uh, link to on the show notes. Um, What are you setting out to achieve with the Asia Society Policy Institute and where do you see your own focus being? 
I'm very excited to have the opportunity to work with Asia Society and it's in some ways, given the jobs I've done and come out of, it's a great luxury to be able to slow down a bit and to be given an opportunity and a platform to think about some of these very difficult challenges and to write about them. What I hope to do is is two things. One is to contribute to an informed public discussion, and that was the point you made right at the beginning, Alan. It's a bracing change for a public servant who's used to spending all of uh, his time uh, avoiding getting any uh, mention in the media. But we are in a period of Australia's history where it's very important for there to be a diversity of voices in the public debate about foreign policy, what our options are and how we can best go forward. And I hope still, uh, even from outside of government, to be able to illuminate policy choices for our policymakers. It's it's quite hard to do, as you know, Alan, from outside of government. Governments are very busy. They're inevitably, perhaps more than ever, focused on managing the, the issues and the crises of the day. But I do think uh, they are in the market for thoughtful insights about complex problems. I think there are a bunch of issues that, that we've talked about today that are fundamentally important to Australia's future prosperity and security, and they're going to be my focus. What do we do about China? What do we do about America? What does global order look like? Where are our interests likely to lie? For the Asia Society Policy Institute, I'll be doing some work on Southeast Asia. They've done some terrific work in the New York outfit very strongly focused this on... This is the uh, institute headed now by Kevin Rudd. That's right. They've done some you know, great work on China and China and America and on Korea and on trade. They haven't done much yet on Southeast Asia, so I'm hoping to give them uh, some thoughtful material looking at the region, the big trends that are shaping change in the region and what that might mean for Australia and for the world. So there is more than enough to get on with and not enough hours in the day. <laughs> that's, that's that's true. But just look, one, one follow-up on that. There, there are now lots of think tanks and academics out there trying to attract the attention of uh, ministers and senior policy advisors in Canberra, as you, as you noted. From your own time on the other side of the fence, what did you learn about how they should do it? There, there were few people in government... Uh, more interested in ideas about the world than you were, I think. How did people break through to you and what have you learned from that? I think people can break through in a couple of ways. One is obviously the quality of what they're doing. There's an awful lot written about the world. Uh, It's hard to be original. But if you are tackling an issue in a way that's genuinely thoughtful and bringing new dimensions to it, then that is of value. I think um, public servants, even in the, even in the world that uh, we live in, in DFAT, they struggle to keep up. And an important way of keeping up is to read broadly, including what think tankers and academics write, because they do help illuminate issues for you. I've always been a big fan of insight It's a word, Alan, you're probably familiar with. It's a word that intelligence assessment agencies use quite a lot. 
I think insight's really important for two reasons. One is policy's always hard. If there was a good and easy solution to a hard problem, someone would have thought about it. And so it's not often that you can really, from outside the system, crack a really hard policy nut and come up with a genius idea. The other reason is, of course, it's very hard to be certain about the way in which the world will change and to be accurate in your forecasts. But if you have deep understanding of an issue or you bring its challenges to light in interesting and different ways, then you're providing insight. You are making policymakers think about an issue in a different way or building their knowledge about an issue or contesting their own framework for it. All of those things are incredibly important to good policymaking because if we were ever in an era where there is a danger in getting trapped in your own analytical assumptions and frameworks than we are now. And I used to find that contestability, if you like, that bringing of insight, that challenging of my own views and assumptions from outside government to be really valuable. To which Darren and I would only agree uh, here, here. Richard, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast and we hope to engage with you further in the future. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Isabel Hancock for her help and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon.